0: Welcome to ASD Engage, a podcast for families of children who are currently waiting for an autism spectrum disorder or ASD assessment.
1: I'm Dr. Heidi Kiefer, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I'm Maureen Mosley, a psychometrist. And I'm Sean Brumby, also a psychometrist. We work on teams that assess children for ASD at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Each episode, we will present a topic that reflects concerns brought forward by families we work with.
2: You'll hear information regarding the assessment process and insights and information from a variety of specialists, and more importantly, we'll talk directly to families who share some of their personal stories with us in an effort to help guide you through the assessment process.
1: In today's episode, we focus on the power of play an important topic that often doesn't get much discussion. Yet research shows that children playing with parents and peers is key to developing bodies, brains, and social bonds. It can help with language, math, managing emotions, social skills, planning, and organizing. We're going to be talking about play and ASD with two guests today, Megan Lynch and Simi Kassam, both occupational therapists at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehab Hospital. Thank you both for joining us today. It's great to be here. Can you start off by explaining what you do here at Holland Bloorview and how you got involved with the ASD population?
2: Sure. Um, Okay, I'll start. This is Simi. Um, I am an occupational therapist in the child development program on the communication learning and behavior team. And it's uh, strictly a diagnostic uh, clinic. So um, our role is assess- assessment and consultation. And because I primarily work with families of children under five years old, um, a lot of my work is more around observing a child in the session. And a lot of it is more consultative with the parent, um, whether I'm, I'm looking at a child's uh, sensory Processing skills, um, their motor skills, or their play skills. And um, so a lot of it is just interviewing the parent, watching the child, how they interact. And so I'm listening for different areas of development. And then um, I'll bring them back, uh, if necessary, to do a follow up consultation to see, to explain the strategies that I'm recommending, um, to see if that's feasible that they can actually do them in their home, and um, to give them strategies they can also implement as they progress in the school system. Um, and so that's pretty much And how I got involved in ASD. Well, that's a long, I don't really want to take up your whole podcast. Um, I always say that pediatrics chose me. I didn't choose it. I happened to move to New York a long time ago, and um, the only positions there were in the school system. So I had been four years out of university. I was only working with adults and geriatric population. And I basically went to New York, got a job in the school system, and had to learn on the job. And I've never looked back. And um, so I had to work with children with developmental disorders, um, ASD. And and then when I came back to Toronto, I was fortunate to work in um, a private practice with an, an excellent uh, occupational therapist who is very, very experienced in sensory processing and pre- predominantly a lot of the clientele there were of the ASD population, so I got to see, do a lot of intervention that way. Um, and then at Holland Blur Review, just working on this developmental team is more diagnostic and consultative. So I've done a bit of intervention, a bit of, of assessment, and um, I would say for me, I really love working with the families. That's really a passion of mine, and um, giving them the tools to be able to uh, interact and um, and play with their child. So. Megan? Great. <laughs> Have to follow that.
3: So yeah, So as Simi said, I'm an occupational therapist here as well in the child development program. Um, I've been on the communication learning behavior team for probably over 10 years now. Um, so uh, my role is very similar to, to what Simi described. So working with the families, um, providing recommendations, strategies, um, ways to support their, their child at home, um, also at school. Um, for me, getting into working with children with autism, it was um, I started with a family many years ago before I was even an occupational therapist before I even knew what an occupational therapist was. Um, I was working with a family in their home and they actually had three um, three sons with autism, so I got to be right um, right in their home life, got to see day to day what that looked like, and that really sort of um, built that connection for me. Um, and then, once I became an occupational therapist, that was sort of where my focus always was. I always knew I wanted to work with children and particularly children with with autism
1: and so we connected with both of you for this episode on play, um in part because you work as partners to facilitate workshops about play that are geared towards parents. Could you tell us a bit about that work that you do with parents? Sure, sure Can't we just start sure, so,
3: yeah, yeah, so we were you know in our discussions of um In regards to the clients that we see, we were finding a lot of the same um, sort of issues were coming up with families. They were sharing a lot of the same um, struggles around play and other kind of daily living skills, particularly with the really young kids. So Simi Simi and I thought it might be a good idea to bring those families together. Um, so that they could share their experiences with each other, um, but then also have the support of us as occupational therapists who can kind of facilitate that discussion, but really provide the chance for the families to to share their experiences and share strategies. So the way that the group works is that we... um, we do a little bit of talking at the beginning, we talk about, you know, sensory processing, we talk about play, um, we talk about other kind of daily living skills, and then the group really opens up, and that's where we allow families to ask questions um, of each other. You know, we we often turn it back to the group, have families share, and that's where you really see the, the connection. So when a family hears something from another family that they've tried, that's worked, then you see that... There's really that, that light bulb goes off for some of our families, and they're much more willing to, you know, go home and try some of the things when they've, when they've talked about it with other families, but also just to know that, okay, I'm not the only one that's experiencing this. You hear it from somebody else, and then again, that helps to kind of build, you know, trust in that, that conversation and more willingness, I think, to, to be able to go home and, and more confidence, I think, to go home and try out some of the strategies.
2: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and just to piggyback off what Megan was saying is that what we've found, we've been running these groups for about a little bit over a year Mm -hmm. now, and... um, Uh, the groups have just been so successful in parents connecting with one another, sharing their strategies, but then even connecting and sort of setting up play dates, which is a strategy Mm. we recommend, especially for children with ASD, because we really want to build on those social skills. And um, even if it's just parallel play, which we might get into a bit later, that's okay. And we really want it to be parent-supervised, child-led. And um, we think that's really an important, um, you know, an area and a lot of um, parents are maybe new to the country and they don't have a lot of family around or they don't really have um, the child doesn't have a lot of friends so sometimes just connecting with another family who may also be going through the same situation we found really really beneficial and then they they can just we sort of make the introduction have the discussion and then we sort of you know leave it and it's just um, it's just nice to see those connections build mm-hmm. at the end Um, so we actually have a group coming up on Monday that we were just preparing for. So, um, we're really, we're really, uh, loving a different way of doing our job. And then again, just the last thing to add is that, you know, we are the professionals. We give these strategies, but we always say the parents are the true experts on their child. You're with the child 24 hours a day maybe now (laughs) and um so you know whatever works for your child even though we give these suggestions it may not work for your child so you will know what works best and our biggest goal is just have fun so what can parents expect
1: to see as play typically develops in children are there developmental milestones of play or different stages of play depending on a child's age yeah so when we're looking at typical play development children will sort of naturally
3: progress through different stages. So early on in the play, um, it is sort of expected that kids will just play on their own and do lots of learning with the toys themselves. And then as they, you know, start to develop other skills, they might move to more what we call parallel play. So then they're playing beside another child. Beside another child. So again, maybe not interacting so much, but they're playing within the same area. And then again, as they develop more and more skills, they will do more like imaginative play, more pretend play, there's more cooperative play, there's more interaction with another child, more turn-taking, and we see that as a child moves through the different stages of of play development.
1: Um, Can you talk a little about the kinds of activities kids with ASD
2: might display
1: within their play?
2: Well, that's where we're just assuming that they actually know how to play with a toy, because typically what we find with children with ASD, oftentimes you've what we've observed in their um, in their plays that they just like hearing the sound of it, so they just bang the toys together, or they they like dumping the toys, and we think, oh, that's cute. They don't understand necessarily how to play with toys, but what we what what I've found with um, the children I typically work with, they really seem to enjoy the cause and effect type toys. And what that means is when you um, you know you press a button, something pops up, for example, like a pop up toy or a jack in the box. They seem to enjoy just having that repetitive play over and over and over with um, with cause and effect toys. They also seem to really enjoy sensory motor type play. Um, where they're playing with squishy slime or things like that, uh, play-doh, bubbles, so that works, you know, on their visual attention skills. I don't know, Meg, do you have other examples? I think also we might see like in children with
3: ASD, again like that repetitive play, but it might not even be with a toy. It might be something that might be you wouldn't expect a child to necessarily be playing with. So it might be opening and closing the cupboard door or um, you know, getting kinda of stuck in some repetitive movement that
1: may not You might not see it um, with another child. And that's exactly what um, my next question was, because oftentimes we see kids, they come in, and um, their play can look very repetitive, like the opening closing a door, or even like blinds, putting blinds up and down. Um, What can you do to redirect a child onto something different when it comes to play?
3: Yeah, so we try to coach families... um, on how to enter their child's play. So if that's what their child is doing, um, trying to encourage families to see that as play and try to get into their their world a little bit that way. Um, So it might be joining them if they're down on the floor repetitively, you know, moving a toy back and forth, a train back and forth, we'd encourage the family to kind of get right down low on the ground with them. Um, Maybe you start by commenting on what they're doing Trains going fast, things like that, really simple verbal language around it. Um, maybe then encouraging the family to take another train and kind of copy the child's movement, right? And try to bring some attention to them. Um, you know, making, Simi so Eng- always does the exaggerated, yeah, exaggerated sounds, um, trying to bring the t- attention. To, to you the that there's another person there that's that's trying to play so with So trying as well. to get that yeah but reciprocal. using what the exactly yeah, yeah
2: but
1: building on what the child is already doing yeah right um and what kind of suggestions would you give to parents um if play doesn't come easy to them some parents think that it's hard work it feels like more like a chore to play with their kids um do you have any ideas or suggestions for these parents
2: yeah so that's a really good question. So I just think the one thing that we really want to get across is that to- play doesn't have to be with a toy and so I think a lot of parents get stuck because a you know they might say, well, we don't have a lot of toys at home and what we want to encourage is that play can be part of your everyday, Activity, interaction—you're part of your routine, part of everything you're just doing, anyways, with your child. Even if it's just sitting with them and playing, singing a song, and playing a game, or getting them dressed, you can make. You know, we Megan and I always give this example in our in our play group. You know, putting their top over their head—you can go peekaboo and making that's that's play. Yeah, I think just thinking about
3: play in a little bit of a different way, so it doesn't always mean like you have to sit down and you're spending a big chunk of time focused on play I think it's building in those um, like just little playful interactions throughout the day and those can all add up and then I think that feels a little less daunting than okay I have to schedule in my play from four till five when you're already thinking about all these other things as a parent that you're trying to get done so I think it's more just shifting how we think about play and how it can be built into little spurts all throughout
2: the day. And, yeah, and also recognizing that uh, the parents' own comfort zone with play and what their values are around play. So um, we don't want this to be pressure or something that they feel like they have to be good at. Um, like we said, play is just supposed to have fun. You're supposed to follow your child's lead and make anything into a playful interaction to work on the social communication skills, to work on the fun skills, to work on the motor skills, to work on the thinking skills. Okay.
0: And so it also sounds like you don't need a whole bunch of fancy toys to be able to do that.
3: No, we often hear from families that, you know, they go out and they buy all these toys and then their kids don't play with them, right? right? So, yeah, we we often try to encourage families to just think about what you have already on hand and what your child is interested in, right? So just observe your child, see the type of things that they're interested in, and then go from there. Um, but, yeah, you certainly don't need to go out and buy all the fancy toys because there's a good chance that they may not be interested in them. <laughs>
0: It, made, it makes you think about those stories, too, where it's they take the toys out of the box, and then the box becomes the yeah. toy, and the thing that's most interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, Simeon and Megan, do you observe any cultural differences in play, and does that affect your approach to working with parents?
2: Yeah, so, um, uh, particularly when I worked in the satellite clinic, um, I worked with a lot of families who were new to the country. Um, had not even heard of half of the toys that I was recommending. So I had to change my approach and how like my expectations of even expecting them to, to understand how, for them to understand how to play with the toy than expecting them to play it with their child. And maybe it doesn't meet their cultural values either. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I would have to, I would start by just asking what sort of, what does play look like in your home? And uh, do you have any toys i didn't want to put that pressure on them in case they didn't have toys i don't know what their financial status was as well so just you know um and you know what i found with some of the the cultural um, expectations is that a lot of uh families would say to me well i don't play with my child um uh you know i just give them you know either an ipad or put some toys out or let them watch tv and and that's play right So then I'd have to do a little bit of education on that is a form of play. But the kind of play that we'd like to encourage is, again, even if it's some of that parallel or reciprocal, the cooperative play, trying to explain how to get, like Megan said, getting down on on the floor with them and doing if they're interested in wheeling the car back and forth. You know, you sort of say, ready, set, go. And you want that anticipation and getting building that into play. And it's something is if that's what they're interested in. That's your play. Um, I will say that I do change my, uh, the way I explain play to, to parents who, um, if English is not their first language, um, or if culturally that's not important to them. Um, I've explained things depending on where they're from, like when I explain wheelbarrow, I can't expect everyone to understand what that means. So I will give an example. I used to say to this one family, particularly they just happened to be from India. I say, well, you know how you hold a rickshaw? Because they all understand rickshaws in India. That's how you hold your child's feet. And they walk on their hands. And they started laughing. And they just thought, oh, but they understood the concept. So I changed my language. Um, and sometimes I just get down and show them. <laughs> and uh, they laugh. Some would they find it a bit... Uh, but then I explain what... It's working on in terms of you know posture and motor uh, you know their 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 gross motor movements and um, and strengthening and things like that. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think it's important to be aware of of you know the cultural values around play, but also just the the families their own background, their own upbringing. They may have not had. That may not have been something that their fam- parents did with them, um, so they may not see that as important. So again, it's a lot of education about why we play and mm-hmm. and um, trying to help understand that, but recognizing that not everyone is comfortable with that, so working within the fam- each family's kind of unique um, situation and values around play. So that's so interesting what you were
0: talking about in terms of the cultural differences, um, not just in, in parents' Um, playing with their kids, but how they might be viewing childhood in general is potentially a time where they're spending time with them and being actively um, engaging as play participants, or um, in some cultures they might be thinking of childhood more as a time when kids are kind of doing their own thing and being more independent um and i what i like about what you said to me is that um you're giving this kind of holistic point of view around play so it's not just about having fun but it's linking these other skills around like communication social interaction the gross and fine motor skill development as well so it's really kind of showing parents how significant play is in terms of their development
2: yeah yeah exactly and i and i also think that like with some families um what what some of the comments have been was that the, their mother will play with them. And what right. I want to get across is that but you can as as their as their parent, as their father also play with them and it's it's not really it's not role specific. Right. Um play is fun, but you're working on if the, you know, the common goal is to is to have fun but to work on all these like like all other skills like motor and sensory and and thinking and cognitive and um that you know, even whatever way even throwing a ball back and forth something like that if if a lot of dads feel that's more um comfortable for them that's fine too um but we just teach a different way so maybe waiting and let, let your child anticipate and request back before just throwing it back and forth because you're we're just teaching them how to play a little bit differently and so that they're still part of the process
0: yeah, even just being flexible. I did a, an assessment the other day uh, with a little two year old who made a game out of putting uh, his dad's flip flops on his feet and yeah. alternating them back and forth between his own feet and dad's feet. And it was hilarious. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, to help parents really think concretely uh, about developing their child's play, can you give us a sense about what kind of environment to create? So, what could a good play space look like?
3: It's a good question. And we do talk about this, yeah. too, with the families that we work with. And, and we hear a lot um, of questions around this, like, how many toys should I have and what should the space look like? And, and we often say, like, try not to overwhelm with too many toys, right? Because when there are too many toys... Then what we see happening is that the child might just move really quickly amongst all the toys, like going back and forth um, and not really ever kind of sitting and playing with one toy in particular. So we talk a lot about, you know, maybe um, so organizing the toys in certain ways. So maybe putting them in bins, labeling the bins, have pictures on the bins, so the kids can easily see what's inside. Um, but what that does is it creates, you know, an opportunity for the child to maybe like request request the toy or they have to point to it or they might have to you know bring the bin to the parent if they can't open it on their own so it creates opportunities for interaction Mm -hmm. Um, and then also we talk about you know again not having too many toys all out at once so you might just have a couple of bins hide the rest for now work on building skills with the toys that are available and then you you can rotate them around so that you know it does create some more interest and, and keeps kids from getting bored with the toys it makes me think
0: of my office when i have too many things out i'm like what should i what should i do (laughs) what should i focus on kids
3: right when there's too much in their environment a lot of the kids that we see too you know do have difficulties with attention Mm -hmm. or they can easily become from a sensory perspective might become overwhelmed with a lot of visual input right so that can be really distracting Mm -hmm. um so what we find when there is you know a safe comfortable space with not too much going on it's actually great to a nice positive environment for building play skills.
2: Yeah. And the other thing, it depends on, um, your living environment. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if you live in a condo or apartment, um, then, you know, your living room can be your play space, okay. your bedroom. Can, it's, you don't have to have a specific play area. Um, with some families that, that do live in houses. And if they have a basement, we've made suggestions on how to create a sensory space at home with, you know, maybe having a tunnel or a tent or a ball that they can bounce on or a mini trampoline, but they, it's not necessary. It's only if it, um, it depends if, if they're working on the sensory skill, if that's, um, if your child is a sensory seeker, like we talked about earlier, um, then th- that's sort of a, um, a good way that you can incorporate play if you have the space. Yeah. And we make it very tailored for the specific, the child's interests and, um, and what, the, what their abilities
3: Mm-hmm. And be, again, based on their like sensory needs. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So then this next
0: question that might be hard to, to answer this next one, then we've talked about, you don't need a, a whole bunch of toys per se, but are there some good basic toys to have at home? Um, depending on kids' developmental levels, like what would you advise for kind of like infancy, toddlerhood, and then the preschool age and then the school age?
2: Yeah. So I could like to break it up into more the the skills, right? From an O T perspective. So like if I were to talk about fine motor skills, I would say I would say things like Lego, um, you know what other fine motor toys? Like if they're younger. So like like bigger blocks, anything that they can work on, like
3: stacking, building, like a lot of those construction type skills. Yeah. Toys are good. Um things where they can have to use two hands together, so things that you push together, pull apart, any toys like that. So we love Those these, like, fruits. the Velcro fruits are good mm. for that. The
2: beating, the, the pop tubes, mm-hmm. um, and then for things like sensory motor play or, like, sandboxes, um, water play, the water play, oh, slime, mm. bubbles, um, and then the uh, cause and effect or, like, the pop-up toys. Um, I think that's a cause and effect. Yeah, so we just yeah we look at ages, but we also look at which goals they're working on, and then imaginative play like let's pretend to play doctor or tea party or things like that. Um, and we always say the dollar store can be your best friend. Um, you don't have to go to Mastermind or Scholar's Choice or you can go to Walmart dollar store. There's a lot of toys that um, that you can buy that are inexpensive that also meet all these goals. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, I don't think we can fully talk
0: about play without mentioning children's use of electronics. Um, What do you think parents need to consider when they're trying to balance out use of tablets, phones, and video games with other kinds of play? I think exactly
3: what you said, it's a balance, right? So finding what works for your family and your child is one thing, right? So you know, knowing that there is a time and a place probably in each household, you know, when there might be appropriate time for tablets and things like that. But I think also just knowing that that's good for some skills, but then we also other types of play help develop all the other areas of development as well, right? So um, just trying to figure out that balance, what works best for for each family and child. Um, So I think it's a combination of you know, the tablet time, but then also thinking about the other areas and and trying to incorporate time for that as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Sometimes I even just highlight with parents too, like you mentioned, like the different types of skills and Mm -hmm. helping to, um, helping parents to identify what those skills are. Right. So when you're using like a tablet and those electronics, it's very predictable, right? It is in a sense, almost cause and effect at times, right? You press something and then it Mm -hmm. can be a very predictable response. Whereas when you're dealing with other people people are very unpredictable and Mm -hmm. so the social skills and the problem solving and the negotiating and perspective taking um becomes more important Mm -hmm, exactly
3: yeah and even just movement right like so many of our kids need a lot of movements Uh, um and you don't get that as much when you're sitting still with a with a tablet right so thinking about that too and what all those gross motor all that sensory motor what does that do for a child's development their body awareness and all their other skills that develop from there as well so again just as you mentioned just thinking about all the other ways that we can play and why why that's Mm -hmm. important too right yeah yeah
2: yeah, and part of our role is also just to educate parents around different types of play. Like we don't want to say that a tablet is bad, and we wouldn't, um, but just trying to have them become comfortable with other play that they can try to engage their child in. Because um, you know, like Megan said, the goal is to also encourage. Like when, when you're when they're just looking at a tablet, not not much is happening in the in the brain. So we want that sort of reciprocal back or some kind of. Um, you know, excitement about something that you're this joint, you know, joint attention, like we say that you can get out of playing with, with a toy or or not a toy, even just a game in general. I, you know, we don't want to just limit it to toys. Um, but again, I, we're not here to judge and, 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 you know, parents have to make that decision on their own. I just try to encourage, um, being the comfort around play and, and why it's important and what skills develop out of having that interaction and it can be, and again, I agree with Megan, you limit, you can limit um, the screen time, but I, and there's also some like really great um,
0: recommendations from the Canadian pediatric society around that too. So if parents go to that website, they can find that listing. Yeah. Yeah. With, Young children with ASD, many parents are concerned about enrolling them in structured activities like soccer or dance. I work with a lot of parents who um, they've tried to do those types of activities and they maybe haven't gone so well. Kids' attention levels are low or they're more focused on their own agenda rather than what they're being asked to do. What are your thoughts about that? Can it be good to have a mix of structured versus unstructured activities?
3: Yeah, I definitely think so, and I understand um, the different reasons why it could be more challenging for a child with ASD to participate in in some of the typical recreation programs, Um, but there is some value in that. Um, We look at, you know, what types of recreational activities might be a little bit better suited for kids with ASD based on, like, potentially any motor planning issues, attentional issues, so we look at... um, more individual type activities but still within the social context right so things like gymnastics karate martial arts swimming so that allows the child to kind of work at their own pace develop their skills at their own pace but they're still within the context of a social situation so there still creates opportunity for some of those um, social interactions so we look at that and then um There are, I think there are some programs out there where the instructors are better trained and have more knowledge around uh, different uh, diagnoses, ASD, and things like that. So looking for, we have some common ones that we will recommend uh, to families around that that might have a better understanding of how to work or how to teach a child with ASD Mm -hmm. um, to better support their development. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Yeah, and just like those three activities, we usually recommend gymnastics, karate, depending on their age. mm and swimming because they work in all planes of movement, you know, vertical, horizontal, diagonal, so they're moving their body and you know, I often say to parents, parents will say to me sometimes, well they, they're just, they don't even participate they don't understand what's going on, they're walking off and I said, I can understand that they don't want to waste their money or time and I completely understand, but I would try to encourage what they are getting from it, even sometimes just watching and um, you know, trying to be interested in another another child, that's mm-hmm. sort of the goal yeah. um, so I'm trying to put a little bit of a positive... Sp- been on why they're doing it and why it's important and again it's only if it fits into their schedule their, their you know um, their values and their their financial situation and their timing um, but you can even do like home yoga you can do so many things at home it doesn't have to be in a structured but I agree with with Heidi what you're saying a balance of structured and unstructured depending um, on your child's interest Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I like how you highlighted, Megan, too. the idea of like potentially like talking with instructors ahead of time Mm -hmm. as well, because like that preparation could make a world of difference as well. So even just thinking about an instructor who like uh, like every kid in the line has to do something and then you're left waiting for a long time Mm -hmm. versus like having kids remaining active and engaged. Right. So there's not a lot of downtime. When things might go off the rails,
3: and that be, might be something too that families could look into before they actually, you know, fully register and pay the money. You know, yeah. contacting yeah. the organization: is it possible to come and do a trial? You know, these are my child's strengths. This is where they might have trouble. This is what works in terms of helping them understand instructions. Things like that. So letting the instructors know kind of what to expect, maybe giving them some strategies, mm-hmm. um, but then also preparing the child too ahead of time. Okay, mm-hmm. so we're going to go to this new program you know, and, and helping prepare them and giving them the tools so they can be more prepared in terms of what to expect can can go a long way too, to making it more enjoyable for everyone. For everyone, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. So some play might also be considered sensory-seeking behavior. How would you describe what sensory-seeking behavior is and what can kids get out of play sensory-wise?
3: Right, so in terms of sensory-seeking behavior, I think we have to... Just kind of understand a little bit about um, sensory processing and what that means is that so we have our um, our different senses, so how we respond to sound, how we respond to touch, um, how we respond to, to visual input, so we have all of our different senses and um, there are times where our sensory system needs more of a certain type of input, so for some of our children with ASD we see in terms of the visual or in terms of touch. Touch. Um, their sensory system kind of seeks or craves more of that. So we might see them engaging in a lot of play where they're trying to fulfill that need from a sensory perspective. So that might be a lot of the looking at things visually, so things spinning, looking up really closely at the wheels of toys, cars, and things like that, spinning, because, um, again, their sensory system needs more. So the child is actively trying to find ways to get that. Um, so I think that's what you're referring to in terms of sensory seeking behavior in play, um. But also just sensory play is an important part of play and that can provide a lot of a benefit to a child's um, overall development. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Um, So sensory play might be playing, you know, tactile kind of sensory play. That's what a lot of people think about. So playing with sand and water and things like that. But it also involves like our whole body movements. Um, A lot of our kids with ASD uh, like a lot of movement. They need a lot of movement. So a lot of like the swinging, going upside down, jumping off things because again, they're trying to kind of fulfill that sensory need. Um, but then on the other hand, we have kids who are, um, you know, more uh, averse, or like avoid sensory input. So they might avoid certain play activities where maybe it's too loud, certain toys that are too loud, or certain play environments that are too loud. So you might actually see those kids kind of shying away from some of those play activities. And it could be because their sensory system overwhelmed by that input. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And also like when you, when you think of, I think about the playground and things like that, you just have to, some kids might have some gravitational insecurity. So when they're on a swing, they, they might start screaming, but you know, it's just when their feet leave the ground and so their body's in a different position. So just keeping aware of that, or they might be afraid going up a slide or going down a slide or they're the opposite. (laughs) They're just, they have poor safety awareness. They just climb everything because they're just their body's seeking it. They need it. But yeah, like Megan said, like the, all the, the, touch type, sensory seeking, um, the visual, the movement we see the most, I would say. So all of the ones that Megan mentioned, plus maybe bouncing on a ball or uh, dancing, jumping, uh, spinning around, you know, um, in circles, you can play hokey pokey, um, you know, head and shoulders, anything with music and movement is a really good way of meeting that need.
1: Okay, is there anything else you wanted to say to parents who are currently on the wait list for an ASD assessment? Is there anything that they can start doing now at home to help with their child's play?
3: Yeah, I think it's important just to think about, you know, play looks different in every family's home. So work within, you know, what the parent themselves is comfortable with, where their child's at in terms of their play skills. And again, just really focusing on, um, you know, your child's skills and their interests and then following your child's interest. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, we do these workshops. We hear from families all the time. Play looks very different in everyone's home. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a matter of focusing on on your current environment, your child's skills, your comfort level, and working working with that.
2: Yeah. 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 And I would just say a couple of take-home messages again are just remember, try to really, you know, get face-to-face with your child. Um, finding, like, it doesn't, again, have to be, remember, toys don't have to be objects. They can be your everyday routine. And I'd say the last biggest thing is just have fun play should be fun it shouldn't be a chore you shouldn't feel pressure around it it should be fun and and anything you're doing in your day-to-day routine um you can make into a game that's great thank you so much for joining us
1: Simi and Megan we learned a lot about play today and um thank you for coming
2: on thanks for having us thank you so much for having us
1: if you've listened
0: to this episode and have comments or ideas that you'd like to share with us regarding future episodes or what you heard today, feel free to email us at asdengage at